sex. Some things are better than sex, and many are worse, but there's nothing exactly like it. W.C. Fields uttered that line a long, long time ago, but it's safe to say that even now, sex is inordinately exciting. In our urban lives, there are few things that connect us frequently in a direct way with our animal selves. One is food, of course. Eating is something we have in common with every other animal, and it's something we typically do three times a day every day. And sex and sexual reproduction is another. Think of your group of friends. Picture your best friend in your mind. Isn't it odd that your best friend and everyone else you know exists only because of sex? Even if your friends were conceived as test tube babies, still they have half the genes of one female individual and half the genes of a dude. There's an endless variety of ways to have sex. A lot of attention is directed at thousands of variations humans have come up with. But on this episode, we're going to venture forward into a direction more inclusive and more expansive. Compared with what happens in sexual reproduction across the whole giant kingdom of animal species, what humans do seems unoriginal. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Riddell. I'm Katie Greenwald. I am a biologist and I study conservation and ecology of reptiles and amphibians. At Eastern Michigan University, Katie studies a type of Midwestern amphibian where the whole idea of sex and gender and even identity gets very mixed up. And like all things that have to do with sex and that mess with what we think is normal, Katie's research is enlightening. So, Katie, before we get to the good stuff, help us get situated. Remind those of us who don't work with these organisms on a regular basis, what exactly is an amphibian? An amphibian is a type of vertebrate that can split their time between land and water. They lay eggs in ponds and places like that. And then many of them undergo a metamorphosis where they spend most of their adult life on land. They have in common sort of slimy skin. They don't have scales. They don't have hair. And the groups that most people are familiar with are frogs and toads um, and salamanders. Salamanders are one of the amphibians you've done a lot of work with. It's relatively rare for most of us to see a salamander. They're not as well known as frogs. They have four legs and a long tail. Their heads and bodies are maybe a little plumper than a lizard's. But tell me, just as a visual shorthand so listeners can conjure up an image of what we're talking about, are there any famous salamanders? When people are thinking about salamanders in terms of representation in popular culture, there weren't many examples that I knew of, but I just saw Frozen 2 with my seven-year-old daughter, and it turns out there is a little salamander character in that movie that is sort of a fire spirit and ends up running around and um, becoming an important character in the movie. So now we do have a Disney salamander. How exciting was that for you to discover a (laughs) salamander in Frozen? (laughs) Mama, look! Mama, look! (laughs) (laughs) I know you study the mole salamander. I'd like to know a little bit more about it. Um, how does, what does it eat? How does it breathe? Do they drink water? Mole salamanders are a really kind of a whole group of salamanders. Um, the genus is Ambystema, and they are pond breeding salamanders. So in the springtime, we'll converge on these small forested ponds and reproduce in the water and lay their eggs there. And they hatch out and have aquatic larvae that then undergo a metamorphosis a few months later in the summer and emerge onto land as little 
little tiny salamanders, tiny metamorphs. They look just like the adults, but smaller. And what is it that they look like? They generally are less than the length of your hand, and they are gray to black in terms of their overall color, but then they have spots that are pretty bright blue. So that's pretty neat. You don't see a lot of blue animals. You're right. Not that many living things are blue, especially ones running around in Midwestern woods. What do the eyes of the mole salamander look like? I've always thought that all of the ambistomatids look like Muppets. They have these really great protruding sort of googly eyes <laughs> that, and a smiley looking face. So I think they're adorable. They definitely look like they ought to be a cartoon character. When you look at them, I'm sure you've held them up and gazed into their eyes. <laughs> Do they have any kind of an expression to them? Do they seem like they're taking you in? or I don't think that they have the muscles to move their mouths or their eyes the way that we do. So you don't necessarily feel that they're emoting in any serious way. They will do these really dramatic blinks at you sometimes. So they have eyelids. Yes. Yeah, they can actually kind of pull the whole eye down a little bit. So it's like the whole eyeball kind of retracts a little bit in this big, big blink. But they're certainly conscious and interested and probably wondering why on earth they've been hoisted out from under their cozy log. What colors do they perceive? We actually don't have a great answer for that. The amphibians actually have a green rod in their retina, which we don't have. So they're actually perceiving color in a different way that we can't necessarily understand because we're missing the physical structure that they have. That's amazing. I have this fantasy that a future technology that we can have some kind of implants that allow us to see ultraviolet or to have the green rod installed so for a little while we could see what the salamanders were seeing. Right. So, Katie, let's get down to it. We're here today to talk about these salamanders' curious sex lives. Now that we know what they look like and what they're up to in the woods, what is it that some of the mole salamanders you study, the ones characterized as unisexual, what do they do when mating that is different and surprising? They are an all-female lineage. So it's a group of salamanders that are all female. For a long time, people thought that they were hybrids. And they look a lot like sort of a mix of the species that are around where they live. And we now know that that's not the case, actually. None of the typical sexually reproducing species will hybridize with each other. And these females are actually a completely separate lineage that's been around for five or six million years. Wow. So scientists saw these different-looking female salamanders and assumed they were the result of simple crossbreeding between species. But they were actually not that at all. They're the opposite of an experiment. They're their own thing, this creature with an ancient way of reproducing that they've been practicing for millions of years. So what is that method? What is their secret to genetic success? What they are doing is actually breeding with the males of the other species. And they'll breed with those males. And then a lot of the time, they won't actually use the DNA from the male. It will just trigger egg development, and they'll lay their eggs, and those eggs will be genetically identical to mom. Her offspring are clones, identical to her in every way? Exactly. Okay. 
But sometimes they do actually incorporate the male's genome. And in that case, what happens is the offspring have an, a whole extra set of chromosomes versus what the mom had. So if she had two sets of chromosomes, like we think of normal animals like ourselves having, uh, she would produce offspring with three sets of chromosomes. And if she had three sets, she might produce offspring with four sets. This group of salamanders can have anywhere from two to five sets of chromosomes, and those sets can come from any of five sexually reproducing species. So how is what they're doing different from sexual reproduction? It's different from sexual reproduction in that they have these sort of extra options <laughs> versus what a sexually reproducing species has. So we humans have only one way to reproduce ourselves, sex between male and female. But she has some in runs around that, some extra possible ways, which is obviously an advantage. Mates are risky. You can't always find one when you need one. But why else is this a good strategy? Why might this way be more optimal in some ways than what humans and other animals have to work with? They don't have to bear the cost of producing males. And the other big advantage is that your entire genome, right? All of your, your genes get passed down to the next generation. If, whereas if you're a sexual reproducer like we are, only half of them make it into your offspring. You're not passing on all of your DNA, which is the whole end game of evolution. What are the downsides to making males? This is a longstanding idea, really described well by John Maynard Smith, who called it the twofold cost of sex. If you're a, an asexual lineage, if you're all female, then every individual can make more females. Two females can become four, and four can become eight, and so on. That population should grow twice as fast as a population that makes two sexes. And one of those sexes isn't capable of making babies. Right, because if you have two sexes, then half of those offspring will be male, and those males can't directly reproduce on their own. They need to access females. An asexual population should theoretically grow twice as fast as a sexual population if all else is equal. So say a little bit more about how the males work their way in there. Why deal with that negative consequence? <laughs> why do males exist? Yes, why do males <laughs> exist? When we look around the animal kingdom, we see most things reproduce sexually. Sexual reproduction must have some strong advantages. The primary one is genetic diversity. An asexual lineage is stuck. All of the individuals are genetically really similar. If the environment changes or there's a new parasite or a new pathogen, if one of those individuals is susceptible, they'll all be susceptible. So the genes of the female want to reproduce themselves, and that's their imperative. And if they choose to do it asexually through just the female reproducing herself, that seems like it would be great for the genes because they get reproduced in their entirety. However, if there's something in the genes that isn't so hot, that they're not resistant to a certain disease, then they're kind of toast at that point. They're not going to continue to reproduce themselves, <laughs> as opposed to the idea of diversity being that, yeah, some of those couplings may result in an organism that's weaker, but some of them may end up resulting in an organism that's more resilient. That's exactly right. Asexual lineages, not only are they unable to respond as well to changes in the environment, but they're stuck with any bad mutations that might pop up. If grandma has a bad mutation, then her daughter, mom's going to have it as well, right? And if mom has an additional bad mutation, well, then I'm going to have both of them. Whereas in sexual reproduction, every generation, there's a 50-50 shot 
of that bad mutation leaving <laughs> the gene pool, right, not making it into the subsequent generation. That ability to purge so-called deleterious mutations as well as put together new good combinations that might respond to environmental changes. Those are two of the major benefits of sexual reproduction. Are the unisexual mole salamanders kind of splitting the difference there? They get the advantages of the female reproduction alone and they get some extra diversity in there too? That's the idea, is that they've found this sneaky evolutionary win-win <laughs> as I think about it. They don't have to produce their own males. They're all female, so their populations can grow really fast. But at the same time, they have this way of introducing additional genetic diversity into their offspring by reproducing with males of other species. When you talk about this with your women friends, does anybody ever get sort of excited about it? Like, oh, they found a way to game the, the heteronormative standard, the normal way that we have to do things. I do. I have, end up having a lot of really funny conversations. <laughs> when I was pregnant, I had a lot of people ask if my husband's genes were going to be in there or not. <laughs> That's something that you don't normally get asked. No, no, definitely not. It would, might be offensive in other contexts. Right. Only a herpetologist can get away with that question. Um, and then, so what actually is the sort of the heteronormative way that salamanders reproduce? If there's a boy and a girl salamander, how do they normally make babies? The other Ambistomata species are all typical sexual reproducers. They have both males and females. They have only two sets of chromosomes, and they come down to the ponds in the spring, and they will all congregate in these wetlands. And the males produce little structures called spermatophores, which is like a little sperm packet that they'll put on the bottom of the pond on a stick or a leaf. And the females will walk over top of that and pick up the spermatophore. So there's not mating exactly as we think of mating, but there is internal fertilization and then they're laying fertilized eggs. So they pick up these packets. How do they make it to the salamander version of a uterus? They pick them up with their cloaca. They have a single opening um, for everything. And so they'll walk over the spermatophore and get it lined up properly and pick it up with their cloaca. And that's how fertilization happens. Oh, so that sort of answers part of my question. One of the things I was confused about when I was reading about this is like, how do these uh, unisexual most salamanders manage to get the sperm? Like, how do they, you know, how do they manage to get it if they're, right? Uh, you know, is that, why are the males just leaving it around? But I understand now that that's a part of their normal process. <laughs> right. And one thing we don't understand well yet is how frequently they're going through courtship routines with the males of the other species versus whether there might just be extra spermatophores around. So they've been called sperm thieves, but I wonder if they might just be more like sperm scavengers, where when there's a breeding event happening, there may be a single male may produce multiple spermatophores, and so there may be extra ones around that they just end up coming into and using. Um, but that's sort of one of the, the remaining mysteries with them is whether they're impacting the sexual populations in a strong way or whether they're sort of scavenging that resource. Katie, I got to say, this is truly strange. I know. Scavenging random sperm. Doesn't matter what species it's from. Oh, here, this looks good. <laughs> in the entire animal kingdom, is this type of salamander the only one that does something this unusual? It is definitely the weirdest alternative mode of reproduction that we know of. There are others that are interesting. 
there are fish that are clonal, but they need to mate with a male of another species in order to reproduce. But that male's genome is not actually incorporated into the offspring. And there are frogs that toss out half of their genome every generation, but it's only the male part of the genome. It would be as if when I reproduced, my daughter wouldn't have any of my dad's genes. I would just throw out all of my dad's and my mom's would be inherited clonally. So that's also pretty weird and interesting. What I hear in that is that the females really call the shots. (laughs) (laughs) If you're the one making the eggs, you may have more options. (laughs) You get the say-so. Let's talk a little bit about what it's like being you. I have to imagine that the way you spend your days doesn't resemble the way that most of us who live in cities do our jobs. What's it like being a biologist? How do you get to see and come to know salamanders? We do all of our sampling and experiments with the animals out in the field. I think the hardest part of the fieldwork is the uncertainty of it in terms of when it's going to happen. So anyone that works with spring pond breeding amphibians knows this dance of watching the 10-day forecast like a hawk, and you're looking for really specific weather conditions. They are not going to come out if it's too cold, and they're not going to come out if it's too dry, and they're not going to come out if the ground is still frozen, even if it does warm up enough. So you're trying to predict what these little salamanders that might be five or six feet down underground are thinking (laughs) when they're going to emerge. That sounds extremely tricky. That's the challenging part. But then when you get it right and you get out to the pond and you find hundreds and hundreds of salamanders have moved in on the same night in March, that's pretty magical. Do you have a favorite tool or is there something that you bring with you that you know it's going to be a really good day if you have that with you? Or any kind of little talisman or lucky charm or anything? I have a field bag. It's just an old canvas tool bag. It's got all of my field gear in it. Before the season starts, I go through it and I make sure that I have everything that's supposed to be in there. And then I just leave it in my car. Mm. And I feel sort of worried if if I have to take it out of my car. (laughs) So that you're ready at a moment's notice when the weather's right. (laughs) Exactly. Which probably reminds you a little bit about like what it's like when you're pregnant and you don't know when you're going to have the baby. You've got to have the bag ready at all moments. Yes, you have to be ready. (laughs) Sometimes when people work for a long time with a certain organism, they start to see metaphors in it for other parts of life. Are there any lessons that you have found in your work that really seem like they apply at a larger scale? Most of the work in my lab focuses on conservation biology, looking at how Amphibians and reptiles are existing in landscapes that we've really heavily modified. When you start working on those sorts of questions, you just see the world differently. You start imagining how it looked you know, a couple hundred years ago. Aldo Leopold said that the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. I think there's some truth to that. You start worrying over things in a different way when you know that we're losing species rapidly and that we're impacting habitats worldwide in negative ways. That certainly um, colors my worldview. Yeah. Are there any impacts of human actions that have made things any better for amphibians? Are there any kind of 
habitats that we've inadvertently created that have been good for amphibians? There are certain amphibians that can do pretty well in human-modified landscapes, and that's actually one thing that my lab has started working on. We have these species that people think of as urban residents. A lot of people have toads in their yard. A lot of people have brown snakes. A lot of people have tree frogs. But for the majority of amphibians, they need really nice aquatic habitat and they need really nice upland or terrestrial habitat. Anything we do that impacts either one of those things or divides them, so something like putting a road in that goes past a pond and now the pond is on one side and the forest is on the other side, um, those can be really detrimental for amphibians. Right. You would think it would be an advantage to be able to live in either water or land. Like, oh, good. Something happens in land. I'll just live in the water. <laughs> but of course, they live in those environments at different phases of their lives and really require both to complete their life cycle. Exactly. And they require both and they require pretty good connectivity between them because in general, amphibians and, and specifically salamanders are, are not very mobile organisms. <laughs> they don't go far. They don't need a lot of space, but they do need it to be the right type of space. I know in England there are some groups of local citizens who, when the frogs are moving from one location to another, they will form these citizen brigades that patrol the roads, mm -hmm. um, slow cars down if they're coming too fast, and there's somebody trying to cross the road. Is that happening elsewhere? Is it happening in the United States? Yep, absolutely. There are a lot of really well-established programs for the public that would like to either help with frog call surveys or salamander brigades where they help them cross streets like you're talking about. So yes, that's definitely one hopeful thing I've seen is that there is a lot of interest from the general public in these animals and in helping keep them abundant. So other people have caring for amphibians as their hobby. For you, it's a profession. On this show, when we're interviewing scientists, we try to ask them not just about their work, but about their whole self. Anything else that you really love to do besides amphibians? Is there a band you love or a TV show or a sport you play or what else happens in your life? Most of the rest of my free time is taken up with my mini farm, my homesteading adventures. I was thinking about this earlier when you asked about things from work that had spilled out into life. Um, industrial agriculture has impacted natural habitats and biodiversity. As much as we can grow our own food or buy local food, it's one of the most important things you can do for biodiversity conservation. I've ended up creating this little homestead where we have chickens and goats and ducks and honeybees and a big garden. It's a lot of work, but I love it. It's, it doesn't seem like work, <laughs> but I do spend a lot of time mucking out stalls and things like that. Can you explain a little bit more about the connection? Why does growing your own food help improve things for other species? And how, how does that help the cause of biodiversity conservation? Across the board, the biggest is habitat loss. If there's just not the space for these species to persist, they're not going to persist. The biggest contributor to habitat loss is agriculture. Most of the land that used to belong to wild things that we now use, we're using to produce our food. And we're using it to produce our food in inefficient ways. And so anything we can do to improve those practices is going to have a really strong positive impact on biodiversity. You're talking about this and also talking about citizen science and amphibian protection brigades reminds me that although a lot of our attention on environmental issues has moved to climate, 
We currently are fighting two global environmental crises, climate change and the rapid rate at which species are going extinct. That second one is something that individuals can have a much more direct effect on than they can on slowing climate change. Protecting biodiversity is something where we can do hands-on work in our communities, volunteering for habitat restoration projects, and as you say, making a change in where we get our food. As much as we can produce food or buy local food, you are reducing the carbon footprint of your diet as well. You're going to be positively impacting things in terms of climate change and biodiversity conservation. Thank you so much, Katie, for being on the show. You're welcome. It's been a lot of fun. This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Dr. Katie Greenwald inspires you to view sex and reproduction as something monumentally creative and open to interpretation. Not every species goes about it the same way. The world is big and strange. Next week, we'll be talking with Andrew Robichaud about animals in cities, specifically how sophisticated urban dwellers lived up and close and personal with farm animals in the 19th century, and how 20th century thinking forever changed our relationship with animals. Until then, enjoy imagining salamanders just being alive out there somewhere, maybe somewhere nearby. You're listening to podcasts. They're slowly blinking their big eyes. The Shape of the World is about nature and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website, shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find out more about Katie's work and much more. The Shape of the World's producer is Ralph Loza. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. I want to thank the NPR show Science Friday for originally doing a short piece on Katie's work that brought it to our attention. Thank you to today's guest, Dr. Katherine Greenwald, and to Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti. <laughs>